for praying with me and I, continue to, I encourage you to continue to pray for everybody who's been affected by the hurricane and if you're up here visiting with us, thanks for being here and we, we would love to get a chance to talk to you afterwards. If you are here this morning, I wanted to just encourage you to, to think about something, think about a question. Why did, why has God saved you? If you are a Christian here, why has God saved you? Why don't you actually think about that now? Now, this is not, not a rhetorical question, but think about it. Why has God saved you? Hopefully, you, you know the answer that, you know, God saved us. If you've been in our church for any length of time, you know that, that God saved us because he chose to love us, and he chose, because he chose us, we love him in return. So he saved us not to do anything to do with us, but all because of his love for us. And hopefully you'll see it's because of the mercy and grace of God alone that he saved us and, and not because we've earned any favor before God. So why did God save us? Hopefully we know that answer is that God saved us because of himself, because of his own love for us, because of his mercy and his grace. And then hopefully you'll see, well, God has saved us for a reason. So the second question I want you to think about is, why has God saved us? What has God saved us to do? What has God saved us to do? Maybe your answer, if you are steeped in good doctrine, it might be the same as those who put together the Westminster Confession and they said, you know, our purpose, our purpose as a man or man's chief end is to glorify God and what was, it, what was the latter half of that? And enjoy him forever. And you'd be right if that was an answer of, of what God has saved us to do, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. But, but then the question, if you're thinking, you have to say, okay, then, then what is, how do we glorify him? What does that look like to glorify God? And I want, I want to look at that and think about these things because really that's what the passage that we're going to look at in Titus is going to unpack is what does it look like to glorify God? How do we actually take that and put it into practice? What does it look like to glorify God in all we do? If that's our chief purpose. And Jesus kind of gave us a hint in Matthew in Matthew 5, Jesus kind of explains how we glorify God. And so Paul, we're going to see in a minute, he unpacks what that looks like. Look at Matthew 5, 16. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn to your Bible. If not, um, ask somebody beside you if you can look on with them. Matthew 5, 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your, or the next two words, you can say them out loud, Good works. So Jesus says, let you, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So Jesus is tying these two things together. How do, we, how do we give glory to God? How do we encourage others to give glory to God? It's actually by letting our light shine. That light shining looks like us doing good works. We all know that Jesus gave the great commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Teach them to do what? To do the things that Jesus commanded. But the problem is we can all forget what we're called to do. We can get busy. We can just get busy with life. We can get sidetracked by other things. We can forget that our life is to be all about glorifying God and how we, one of the primary ways we glorify God is by doing good works. But we can forget that and sometimes we can become comfortable. You know, I, I was thinking about, you know, sometimes our forgetting is, is not sinful. It's just, it's just like when I forget my keys. Um, I, I have to admit, I've, I had to develop a system to put my keys in the same place every time because I forget them otherwise. 
and I would spend like half the morning every day looking for my keys if they didn't go back in the same place. Anybody, anybody else forget their keys ever? Or is it just me because I'm post-40s? Just me. Good. So, you know, I forget my keys. I forget where I park if I don't pay attention to it. You know, if I, if I go to a large parking lot, to Costco, to Walmart, I'll come out and like, oh, hang on, where, where did I park? It's, it's not always negative. It's just sometimes I need to pay attention. I need to be reminded to pay attention to things. And, and that's what we see from the Apostle Paul here is a reminder. He's talking to the church in Crete. We're going to see in just a moment is Paul is giving a reminder about what's important and a reminder what, why we need to do what we need to do and then the motivation for that as well. Before we look at that, though, I was thinking through, what's another reason why I fail to do good works? And sometimes it's because I'm comfortable. I get really comfortable. I like my comfort. I, I know that's not okay to admit that publicly, but I like my comfort. I like lazy boys. I like that I have a memory foam mattress. It's great. When I go on vacation, no matter how wonderful it is, I actually want to come back to be in my own bed. I like my comfort a lot. And we can, as Christians can be comfortable too. You know, comfort's a good gift from God to be enjoyed, but we can, we can begin to be comfortable and we need to be stimulated. We need to be reminded because we can act and live as if God created us just to be comfortable, as safe and secure. I, you know, I enjoy the fact that God rescued me. I love this church. I love that we, we enjoy comfortable and, and good fellowship. Now, sometimes it is awkward, but you know, we're all awkward, so that's okay. But I love that when I come in on Sunday mornings, there is a comfort, and that's a gift from God. But God saved us not to leave us comfortable, to transform us so that we might take that good news to other people. And one of the primary ways we do that, as Jesus said, is by letting our light shine. Now, why do we do good works? We don't do good works to earn favor before God, but because God has been favorable towards us. So that is kind of the the setup, if you will, for our passage this morning. So turn your Bibles to Titus 3. We all need reminders to do good works. We all need to understand the motivation and inspiration for good works. So let's look at Titus 3, verses 1 through 8. This is God's holy inspired word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And here's the bulk of the passage we're going to focus on really is verses 3 through 8 this morning. He says this about all of us, and he includes himself in it. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's some bad news, isn't it? Now let's read the rest here in verse 4 to 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your inspired word for us today. Thank you that these words are not merely the words of man, that these are your words written for us, not just for that day, but for today. God, I pray that you would help us be attentive to your words. Help us listen to your words for ourselves, Lord. Help us apply your words, Lord. Every bit of your word is applicable to us, Lord. Let us discern how to apply these words to our own lives. Let let us, Lord, apply this word to our hearts, to our minds. And God, let's respond to you by your grace and in your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, storms, they have a way of reminding us of what's important, don't they? If you are at storms of life, not just the storms outside, but the storms of life, troubles, trials, persecutions, difficulties, they have a way of reminding us about what's most important in life. And, and if, we have, um, if we have our antenna up, if you will, the storms have a way of, of focusing, us, focusing us on what is key, what's central, what's important for us in life. You know, sometimes people hear the good news more clearly when we see, they see we care about them and that, that we care about their needs genuinely. We respond to the storms of life. We care for other people. Sometimes people say, hey, I actually want to listen to what that person's going to say. And so storms are opportunities too. The point here of Paul, he's talking to Titus and his main encouragement to Titus is that the, the culture in Crete, it is not a good culture. It is a culture that is against Christianity. It's a culture that is steeped in selfishness. It is gluttonous. He's, he's told them earlier, he quotes one of the poets and he says, you know, Cretans are always evil beasts, liars, gluttonous, selfish. They're surrounded by people who are pluralistic, by people who don't care about the good news of the message of Jesus. And so what does Paul remind them? He reminds Titus, Titus, I want you to tell the church there's something very important so that the people around you will hear the good news he says, I want you to remind them to do good works so that they'll hear the good news. And, and the main idea we're going to see in this passage for Crete, it's equally applicable to us today. And, and it's not that we do good works somehow to earn God's favor in any way. And he, he, he addresses that in this passage. But the main idea that we see in this passage is that we delight to do good works. We delight to do good works because God delighted to save us despite our works. Did you get that? We delight to do good works because God delighted in us despite our works. God delighted in us despite our works. There is some motivation here for why we do good works. The Apostle Paul is is really speaking clearly. Why do we do good works? It's not so that God will be happier with us. But we delight to do good works because God delighted in us despite our works. And that's really good news. I don't know about you, but if if we have to rely on our good works for God to save us, that is a shaky foundation. But we delight to do good works because God delighted to save us despite our works. So what we're going to see is in verses 1 and 2, Paul has already told us, already commanded, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, about what those good works look like. It looks like being submissive and obedient to all authorities. And we talked about it a little bit. Not, not a lot of us like to submit to authorities naturally. And then the second part in verse 2, it talks about how do we relate to others with kindness, with gentleness, showing all courtesy to all people. But then Paul takes a step back and he explains. Here is, is really in verses 4 to 7 is the motivation for our good works. 
The motivation for our good works is what we're going to take a look at. And the primary motivator for our good works is seeing who we were and then seeing now who we are. Seeing who we were and then seeing who we are. You know, sometimes I don't like to think about who I used to be and how sinful I used to be in my past life. And I don't even like to think about how sinful I am currently. I don't like to see those things because I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed about my sin, my past, my, my ugly parts of my life. And, and that, honestly, the embarrassing part is that some of those things in, in some ways continue today. And yet the Apostle Paul is encouraging us, it's actually good to reflect back on who we once were. And that's what we see in, in verse three right there is reflecting on who we once were. It's good and has good benefits. It's a motivator for us to actually do good works. And so the first motivator is seeing who we once were. And the second motivator we'll see in verse four to seven is who we now are. And that's the motivation for good works. And if you, if you don't get the motivation for good works right then you're going to wrongly think that somehow God is either pleased or displeased with you because of the works you do or don't do. And Paul wants to make sure that's not what's going on. And so he says, see who we were. You ever have a time when you look down on anybody? Anybody here ever look down on somebody else? You can raise your hand if you've ever looked down on anybody else. Yeah, you ever look down on somebody else because you think, how could they do that? How could they be so foolish? How could they be so ignorant? How in the world could they continue to be disobedient? How in the world, why do they act like that? And you get disgusted and maybe even a little angry. Anybody ever been angry with somebody else's behavior and you're thinking, how in the world could they be like that? You ever, you ever think that? Maybe about a neighbor, coworker, you know, maybe a spouse, I don't know. <laughs> you, you think that way? You, you, know, you, you wonder, okay, how in the world could they be like that? The people in the church in Crete, they probably were tempted in the same way. And Titus was probably tempted that way too. If you're surrounded by a culture of evil brutes and gluttonous people, you might get a little frustrated at times. People who look down on Christians and who think that there is no, no one source of the truth. You know, in our own culture today, I think we can relate to the people in the church in Crete. If you look around us, it's not necessarily a positive environment for Christianity in the sense that people are not, oh yes, Christians, we want to hear what you're going to say. Please tell us the truth. What you often hear is the reverse. Hey, please don't tell us the truth. And by the way, keep that to yourself and only yourself. And it can get frustrating at times. You get angry. You ever, you ever tempted to ang be angry towards unbelievers because of their attitude towards you? Anybody else besides me ever tempted that way? And you can be tempted that way. You can be tempted to condemn other people who you think are foolish or ignorant or off base or especially sinful. And sometimes we can, we can condemn people because they're malicious or hateful or evil. And we can slip into the same behavior patterns that we see in the world around us for so-called right reasons. You know, I found sometimes I can find myself getting harsh or bitter or impatient with the sins of other people. You ever find yourself doing that? Getting harsh or bitter or impatient with somebody else's sin? You know, I mean, if you, come on, be honest with me now. If you're, if you're married, you ever have a time where you get a little bit impatient when your spouse has done that thing that they do for the 18th million time, it seems? You ever, you ever feel like that? Or if you're parents, you feel that way about your children? Or children, you feel that way about your parents? I'm guessing, or your siblings? 
Or maybe you get frustrated with people in the church here because, oh my goodness, how could they continue to do those things? And so in that culture, in that environment, in that attitude, it's not possible for us to actually be kind and loving to other people. And see, Apostle Paul, he sets us straight and he says, no, remember, that's who you were before you get arrogant, before you start judging, condemning other people, before you get angry at other people, and, and in order to enable you to have the right heart, the right mindset to even begin to do good works, you need to have the right attitude, and that attitude begins with seeing who you once were. And he wants us to spend time doing that. See who you once were. Look down in your, in your Bibles. And, and, and by the way, Paul, he's not separating himself from Titus saying, hey, tell those, those darn Cretans who they used to be. No, he says, we ourselves. And if the Apostle Paul can say, we ourselves, I'm guessing every one of us can relate to the we ourselves as well. And let's see what he says about it. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish. We were fools. We, we didn't understand what was truly good for us. We didn't understand the truth of God's word. We were fools. And then he goes on. He says, not only were we fools, we were foolish, we were disobedient. We didn't obey God from the heart. We were doing our own thing, going our own way. And then he goes, he says, we're led astray. And then he explains what we're led astray by. We're, we're slaves to various passions and pleasures. You know, Paul is saying here, don't, don't think that you're so great and wise and, and that God saved you for anything of your own because you were just like all the people around you that you need to proclaim the gospel to. And if you're going to have a heart for proclaiming the good news and for being kind and loving other people, you got to see who you were too because you're just like them. And, and let that bring a dose of humility to all of us. That Christian, if you are here, you are not inherently better than someone else of your own merit. You've not somehow, God didn't rescue you and saved you because you were so much more impressive than the people who you might think are heinous. And Paul wants us to remember that. And he goes on, he says, we were slaves. We were slaves to our own passions and pleasures. And why does he tell us that? Because it's important for us to see that everyone around us who we might struggle with and have difficulty and think, there's no way they're going to become a Christian. There's no way I'm going to be kind and loving to them because, man, they don't even like the idea that I'm a Christian. They're against us. Well, you know what? They're, they're enslaved. But you know what? We were enslaved. And we need to, to cultivate a heart of humility and mercy towards other people. And if we're going to do good works and love people by seeing that, you know, we ourselves were once slaves, that, that word means we had another master. We had a master, and that master was our own desires. You know, the world around us tells us that, you know, you want true freedom. True freedom means do what you will. And God says, no, that's actually not freedom. That's slavery. To, to, be, to be told to do whatever you want, live your own way, live according to your own desires, your own pleasures. The world says, oh, that's real freedom, man. Do whatever you want. Live according to your own desires and passions. And God says, no, that's actually slavery. You're enslaved to your passions and desires. You're foolish. You didn't know that. You're once enslaved. And so once were all of us. We were all enslaved. We couldn't help but serve our master of our own desires, our own sins. And that's, that's how we identify with everybody around us. That's a motivator. Hey, wait a minute. You know, we're in the same situation. 
If, if you were enslaved in a prison camp and you got out, you would probably care about the plight of the people who were in that prison camp because you were just like them. You can identify. And so the Apostle Paul is trying to help us see you are just like them. You once were just like them. And he wants us to identify and do good works, be kind to others so that they might hear the good news and no longer be enslaved. He says you were once not only enslaved, you were Passing our days in malice and envy. You're hating and then desiring what other people have. And you think, you know, I don't really struggle with envy. I never really struggled with envy when I wasn't a Christian. I, I don't know. You ever struggle with the idea of someone else getting recognized and you don't get recognized? You ever struggled in the past with someone else having success and you not having the same level of success? Or maybe else, somebody else being having fame or power and you not having that same level of fame and power. And, and Paul says, you know what? The world around us, they're motivated by envy and so once were all of us. We were malicious and envious. You were enslaved. Not only enslaved, you were, we were hated by others and hating one another. Don't think that it's just those people out there who hate us. We once were that crowd. We once were hating everybody else and hated by others. So he says, don't forget. Don't forget who you once were. Don't forget that you once were envious. Don't forget that you were once enslaved. And if you have been a slave, the joy you know of no longer being a slave is something you want to share. And so the motivation for us to do good works is, is not to impress other people. It's not so that other people say, oh, what a great person they are. So that other people say, hey, wait a minute, who set them free? How did they get liberated? And so Paul says, Titus, we ourselves were once this way. Don't think that you're better than those you struggle to love and be kind to. Don't think somehow you're more worthy or deserving of salvation or the grace and patience and kindness of God. We're no more deserving and superior than those we struggle most with. You get that? People you struggle most to love are, are equally, you were equally deserving of, of wrath. So how does remembering those things make a difference? It gives us humility. It gives us perspective. Helps us identify with every kind of person, no matter how different, how we're more similar than we may like to believe. Helps us show Compassion. You know, if you understand that you have been rescued by someone else out of a situation where you were a slave, it gives you compassion and want to see those people be rescued too. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is after. It's exactly what God is after. He wants us to do good works with the motivation of, of the compassion and gracious kindness that God has. And then after beginning with the remembrance of who we once were, Paul moves on and he reminds Titus not only who we once were, but the grounds now for how we can have any hope to do good works. And so he says, now, now don't just remember who you once were. I want to remind you who you now are. See who you once were and then see who we are. I love the verse that says, but he saved us. But he saved us. Where is, where is the, the motive? Who is the one doing the action here? It's, it's God saving us. It's not us saving ourselves. But he saved us. That's meant to be a motivator. He saved us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us in verse 5. 
What motivated God wasn't our goodness, but his goodness. It was the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. Jesus himself is the embodiment of goodness. He's the embodiment of loving kindness. And it was only his goodness and his loving kindness that motivated him to save us. It wasn't our worth. We didn't save ourselves. We couldn't. He saved us. And and don't sit here this morning and be unaffected by that. Think about who you once were. and Really do that. Really let all of the nastiness flood over you for a moment. Think about who you once were. Think about how you were mired and how you would never have known the truth except if God had showed it to you and and opened your eyes up. And, And then think about the fact that he saved you. Let that stir your heart. Let that affect you. If you're sitting here and you're, you're not affected right now, I'd encourage you to, to really meditate deeply on the fact that who you once were, you now not are, are not that same person because he saved you. He saved you. Let that create humility and gratitude in you. He wants the, the church to be really clear. He says, he saved us, look in verse five, not because of any works done by us in righteousness, Even your best works, God didn't save you because of your best works. He didn't save you, it had nothing to do with anything you've done. It wasn't because of how impressive you are, or how much you cleaned up yourself, or or how good you were, or you did all the right steps, and that's why God saved you. He says, no, he saved us not because of works. That's that's humbling, and that's faith-building. It's humbling because we had nothing to do with our salvation. God saved us not because of our works. And then why it's encouraging is because when our works fail, and they will, we can have confidence in his mercy that saved us. It's the same mercy that keeps us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. You can't ever work your own way to heaven you know, any, any religion or, or any teaching that you hear that says you're going to be more acceptable to, to God if you behave a certain way or that if you do certain things, God's going to love you more, he's going to be more kind to you, that, that God is going to be more gracious to you on the basis of your works, that he's going to rescue you on the basis of your works, that, that you can have a self-improvement program that God will say, hey, you know what, I'm really glad I got a great catch here. Any religion, any teaching that says that is anathema. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. It says that, you know what, we earn favor before God. God says, no, he saved us, not because of our works, but because of his mercy. And Paul, of all people, he knew that all too well, right? Think about who the apostle Paul was. He, he was actively persecuting Christians so much so that, that Jesus knocks him down on the road to persecute more Christians, Jesus stops him, he blinds him, and he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was persecuting Jesus himself, and God in his mercy stopped him. Paul wasn't seeking God. Paul wasn't doing good works. Paul wasn't being impressive. Paul was doing bad works, and he was doing legalistic works, And God stopped him and saved him according to his mercy. Paul couldn't be more clear here than he he is when he says we didn't save ourselves. He saved us. 
and our salvation is completely dependent on God's mercy. It takes away any sense of human pride. It's meant to reflect and affect, it's meant to reflect God and affect how we relate to other people. God saved us in his mercy, and so why do we do good works? Well, it's to reflect the mercy that God has given to us, and we're to be so affected that we then in turn show mercy to other people. If we relate to unbelievers as those who have who need the mercy and grace of God, it's going to shape how we view them. How do you think of the people that you despise the most? Do you think of them as people who were like you in need of mercy? Do you think of them as people like you who were in need of God's grace? Do you, do you think of them as, as people who need loving kindness like you? We're no more worthy than the worst kind of person we might encounter. We're desperately dependent on the mercy and grace of God. And I love how there's a Thayer's Dictionary defines mercy, the, the biblical word for mercy, as kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted. Kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted joined with a desire to help them. That's the kind of mercy God's had towards us. He's had a kindness towards us who were miserable and afflicted joined with the desire to help us all because of his own motivation to save us. He says he saved us, not because we deserved or earned it in any way. Let that sink in before you judge other people. Before you treat them like they have to earn your affection or earn your love or earn your kindness. You ever feel that way? If you're honest, you probably do. A lot of us feel like, you know what, no way. They treated me wrong. There's no way I'm going to be kind to them. My neighbor, they're such, they're such a pain. There's no way I'm going to be out reaching out to them because they've not been kind to me. But yet, if you have this motivation, says, you know what, I was not kind to God. And yet, in his mercy, when I was miserable, he saved me. It affects how you treat your neighbor. So may we revel in the mercy of God by showing us mercy. And then, then look down your Bible some more. Look, look at the language that Paul uses. He says, God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What, what does that mean? It means we had to be washed outside of ourselves. We had to have the Holy Spirit wash us. We were degenerate, and he had to make us regenerate through his washing. The Holy Spirit had to do it. You didn't make yourself clean. Now, as believers, we're to do good works, but we don't clean ourselves up. He's already made us clean. He's already washed us. He's regenerated us. That, that word for regeneration, it, it literally means new birth. It's the same word that, that Jesus told to Nicodemus, and he said, you must be born again. You must be regenerated. And our confidence is that the Holy Spirit has washed us. He has regenerated us. He's made us new. He's born us anew, and that's come from the Spirit. And then he's, he's made us new. He's renewed our desires, renewed our minds. He's given us a desire and a heart for him so that now we can be actually sanctified or become more and more like him. And if you understand that that activity is something that happened outside of you, that the Holy Spirit acted on you to wash you, to regenerate you, to make you renewed, it will motivate you to say, God, I want to worship you. Thank you. And I want to worship you. I want to bring glory to you with my whole life. And how, God, I want to bring glory to you by doing good works so that others might see the good works and give glory to you as well. 
I, I love the, the confidence that gives us in, in two ways. There's two means of confidence that should give us to do good works. One is that, Christian, you are no longer defined by your sins. You've been washed, you've been regenerated, you've been made new, no matter how terrible you are, and think, I'm unworthy to do good works. I'm unworthy to share the good news. Um, he says, no, you've been washed, you've been regenerated, you've been made new. And then the other reason for confidence is that it says, by the Holy Spirit. And then look down in verse 6. Look down at verse 6. It says, whom he poured out. This is motivation for confidence. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He, he saved us. He made us completely new. He regenerated us. And that regeneration, it's, it's not like he's, he, he took us and he's now He's adding things to us. No, he completely made us new. I, I like the way that John Chrysostom said it. And he says, For as when a house is in a ruinous state, no one places props under it, nor makes any addition to the old building, but pulls it down to its foundations and rebuilds it anew. So in our case, God has not repaired us, but he has made us anew. There's reason for confidence there. He's not repaired us. He's made us anew. He's regenerated us. He's made us new. And then on top of that, he has poured out the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, he poured out on us richly. The whole Trinity is involved in this passage here. That God the Father is pouring out on us the Holy Spirit through his Son. God's at work enabling you, changing you. He saved you and he's made you new and he's enabling you by the Holy Spirit to do the very things that Paul is talking about. So Christian, don't think for a moment that you're not capable of changing and, and doing the worst that God's called you to do because you have the Holy Spirit who's been poured out richly on you. That's our confidence. It's not that, hey, we're this great fount of good works. No, the Holy Spirit's been poured out on us richly. And you know what happens when the Holy Spirit's poured out richly in the Bible? Dramatic things happen. In the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, things happened. Armies got defeated. People were empowered. Samson, he slew a whole army worth of Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey. When the Holy Spirit is poured out and the Old Testament knew alike, things happen. God empowers, he enables. And so we're meant to see this motivation, this confidence comes from the fact that knowing that God has poured out his Holy Spirit on us richly. It's the same word that's used in Acts 2 when in, the, in Pentecost the Holy Spirit was poured out. It was poured out, and, and dramatic signs started happening, and thousands of people came to Christ on that day. It's the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that's been poured out on us. The same Holy Spirit that, that ultimately raised Jesus to life, defeating the ultimate enemy of death, is the same Holy Spirit that's been poured out on us. And then as Romans 8.11 tells us, we have the power now to do what God calls us to do. Romans 8.11 says, in the spirit, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we now can do good works. We have not only the motivation for the good works, we have confidence to do the good works. Because we have his Holy Spirit, he's made us new, he's made us alive, he's shown us mercy. We once were, and here's who we now are. 
We've been made new, and we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the good news doesn't stop there. Look down at verse 7. Look down at verse 7. Good news doesn't stop there. This good news that's our motivation for good works doesn't stop with him rescuing us, making us alive, giving us the Holy Spirit. Look at, it continues in verse 7. It says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, so that being justified means something. We now know that he, he considers us as no longer sinful. He has, he has taken all the debt of our sin that stood against us and he has said, paid in full. We, we're, we have been justified already. And so God's wrath no longer stands against us. It says, so that, there's a reason why God saved us, he justified us for a reason. So that being justified, we might, he says, become heirs. God saved you to give you all of himself. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are heirs of God the Father. Now think about that. When, if I was an heir of Bill Gates, I, I would anticipate that I would receive something on his death, hopefully. Now some guys like that have this weird notion that you know I'm going to make my kids work for it too. But God's not like that. He says we're heirs. We're heirs of God himself. He's justified us and he's made us his heirs. And now we have, we have eternal life because of that. No penalty, no punishment remains. We're heirs of God himself. And that's the ultimate goal that he saved us is that we might be his heirs. We might receive all of God's goodness. So Paul has given us some serious motivation here. He's given us the motivation of saying, here's who you once were. Think about it. Here's who you once were. All of us were just as bad as every one of us. Now, we've not all done the same things as the people around us, but you know what? In our hearts, we all have the exact same motivations. We've all at one time been motivated by our own pleasures and desires in the same way that other people around us have. And yet God now has saved us by his mercy. He's regenerated us. He's washed us. He's made us new. He's justified us. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. And then he says, now not, not only is all that the great motivation for it, so now there's an application. He wants to see the application in verse 8. See what we're to do. He says, so that we may devote ourselves to good works. That's the application. We have the motivation, who we once were, who we now are, and now we see the application is that, so that. God didn't save us so that we can just be comfortable. He, he wants us to relish and to love the fact that we get to come into his presence, that we get to be with other believers. He wants to enjoy all the benefits of being in him, but he didn't save us just to be comfortable. He saved us so that we might do good works so that others might glorify the Father. It says, so that, all of these things. This saying is trustworthy. Insist on these things. Now, that word insist, it's very strong. He means insist, demand, require these things. Church, do you know there's requirement on your life if you have been saved by the grace of God? There's an insistent command. And it's for each and every one of us. Insist on the truth of these things, that who we once were is not who we now are. Insist that that's true. Why? Because it has an effect in how we act. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Not haphazard, not thoughtless, not do them when you think about them. Be careful. 
Be thinking about it. Pay careful attention to do good works. Why? Oh, because of the truth of who we once were and who now God has made us to be. I love a quote by Martin Luther. He says, Though our neighbors may be blind, erring and wicked, yet we should be charitable in our judgment and cheerfully endeavor to please them, remembering God's similar attitude towards us when we were as they. If we, though unworthy, were received through mercy to enjoy the favors of God in spite of our great demerits and the enormity of our sins, who, why should we withhold our favors from others? Whose merits have claims upon us? Let us not withhold. No, let us rather be children of God, doing good even to our enemies and to evildoers, for so God has done and still does to us evildoers and his enemies. If, if you are sitting here and you have been made new, if you are a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, he has done something in you that you could not do. He's drawn you. He's saved you. He's made you new. He's regenerated you. He's washed you. He's done all of these things so that you then in turn might demonstrate his goodness by your goodness, by your good works. In closing, I want to look down the final part of verse 8. See the inspiration, the benefit, really. He says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. This truth, this devotion to good works, is it's excellent and it's profitable. Do you ever think that way? These truths are excellent. Why is it excellent? It's excellent because it opens the doors to the gospel. It's excellent because it brings glory to God, as Jesus said. It's, it's excellent because people might see our good works and glorify the Father. It's excellent because people see the testimony of our lives and they want to understand what motivates us to live that way. It's excellent because not only do other people benefit and people might hear the good news proclaimed and they might want to know and hear the message that we have, it's also excellent because God works in us. There is nothing like being kind and loving to people who don't deserve it to challenge your own sanctification. And it's excellent because God works to sanctify us when we do good works. And it's profitable because we get to show the same mercy and goodness that God shows to us, to other people. And it profits them. It's profitable to you because our Father is good. It's profitable because people benefit. It's profitable because people can see our good works and be saved. It's profitable because in our own lives, he removes selfishness. He brings humility. He makes us more like him. These things are excellent and profitable. Now, imagine the changes that we would see if every believer, not just in this room, but if it started at least with everybody in this room, if every believer in this room were to begin to understand who they once were, understand who they now are, and then say, you know what? I'm going to be careful to devote myself. My life is going to be about doing good works in whatever I'm in, in whatever occupation I'm in, if I'm a student, if I'm out of work, if I have a job, wherever I'm at, if I'm retired, whatever season of life I find myself in, I, I know that I'm going to glorify God now because I'm going to be devoted. I'm going to be careful to be devoted to good works. Imagine the opportunities for the gospel. Imagine how many people might come to know the good news. 
Imagine how it would actually transform our society around us. I, I, I think God has that for us. He wants that for each and every one of us. He wants our, our neighborhoods to be transformed. He, he wants your work to be transformed. He, he, wants, he wants this whole upstate region. He wants all of South Carolina. He wants, he wants us all to be transformed as we give our lives to him, doing good things because he has done the greatest things for us. We delight to do good works because God delighted to save us despite our works. Imagine the glory that God would get. Do you want that? Do you want to see God glorified? Do you really want to see the world saved? Do you really want to see people come to him? He, he gives us a foundation for it right here. And imagine if we all went out from here today and started doing that. I think God would get a lot of glory. And I pray that I would do that because if I'm honest, I realize that I don't, I don't, I'm not devoted to good works in the way he's talking about here. I pray that not only that I would do that, but our whole church would do that. I pray that that would be contagious and that God would get glory and the gospel be proclaimed. Amen? Well, why don't we pray? As we pray, Joe, if you'll come up and lead us in one final song, that would be great.